Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. Uh, we have here our panel that you know, Ambassador Naldeep Suri, and also Justin Browlout, the BBC South Asia correspondent. We're very happy to have you all here today. And I think the format for the evening will have a discussion between the three of us. And we'll ask you to hold your questions until the end, where we can have a Q&A and then a reception and a book signing. So I think, Ambassador Suri, the first thing you have to tell us is how the manuscript came to be, how it came into your hands, and how the entire publication of the book arose. I think I have uh, to thank uh, uh, good luck and perseverance from my um, father, because uh, uh, the book, uh, uh, when it was first published in May 1920, was uh, soon thereafter banned by the British, and all copies were confiscated. And uh, for the next 60 years in our family, we just knew that our grandfather had written Kuni Vesaki, but nobody had actually seen it. And uh, there was a passing reference to it in my grandfather's autobiography, uh, which was first published in 1949, speaking about Kuni Vesaki, but that was about it. Um, my father kept looking for it. And uh, in 1979, 1980, there were two coincidents that took place. Uh, the first was, there's a professor of Punjabi language in a college in uh, Amritsar, Dr. Gupta. He had written an article in a literary magazine called Jagriti, which spoke of my grandfather Nanak Singh as a poet rather than as the novelist that he was known as. And in that article, he made extensive references to Khuni Vesakhi. My father came across that article and immediately saw something amiss. How does this man know so much about Kuni Vesakhi when nobody has actually seen it? So he called the editor, got Dr. Gupta's address. My mother and he then went off to in search of Dr. Gupta, went and met him and they asked him, how is it that you wrote? And Dr. Gupta then had his story that his grandfather was an avid collector of books and manuscripts and pamphlets and everything. And he perhaps had picked up this soon after it had been released. Um, and many years later, when Dr. Gupta moved residence, he found gunny sacks full of these old pamphlets. And sifting through them, he came across this old manuscript. Being a professor of Punjabi, he immediately knew that this was something rare that he had in his hands and proceeded to write that article. Mm -hmm. So uh, at least that is one particularly interesting strand. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So this poem is actually a very, very moving account, of course, of the Amritsar massacre. So I thought, you know, just to inform the audience, maybe, Justin, you could give us the historical context that we need to really understand the text. So well, let's do it together, Navdi, because we have mm. different, we have a, a very unusual family bond. Mm. My great-grandfather wrote the the act that was uh, the uh, legal act that was... Uh, in a way, precipitated the uh, the massacre in that the people originally were demonstrating against the the rather draconian <laughs> Rowland Act. The Rowland Act, mm -hmm. the Black Act, mm -hmm. can we call them, that my great-grandfather wrote. And of course, your grandfather was 
in the garden at Jalian Wallabag when the uh, the massacre took place. So it happened on the 13th of April 1919. Um, it was after a series of uh, conf- conflicts that had uh, uh, there'd been demonstrations in Amritsar. There'd been uh, some uh, British people had been killed, also some Indians killed. The British were upset about the uh, the Brits who'd been killed. Um, and there was uh, there was a, a meeting. The the guy who'd come to take over uh, military operations in Amritsar, General Dyer, issued a proclamation, an order that there'd be no more meetings. Um, it wasn't done very thoroughly. And uh, the meeting in Jalian Wallabag, which is a walled garden in the centre of Amritsar, uh, went ahead. About 15,000, 20,000 people. All the figures are disputed. Fifteen or 20,000 people there in the afternoon of the 13th of April. And uh, the general heard that this meeting was taking place and proceeded with 50 troops through Amritsa and got to the entrance to the garden, which is actually a narrow pass. Path. He had two armoured cars with machine guns on them. He couldn't get, thank God, couldn't get the machine guns in, but went in with the troops and immediately opened fire. It was his belief that the, that, that, that the whole of the Punjab was rising up against the British. It was a mutiny happening all over again, huge rebellion, and he decided he needed what, with hindsight, we would call exemplary punishment. He needed something that would be so big that would demonstrate British power and subdue what was happening in uh, Amritsar and therefore opened fire, fired 1,650 bullets or something over the course of 10 minutes. Um, Again, the figures are disputed. The British say 379 people were killed. Um, I think the more realistic estimate is much more like five or 600 at least and three times that wounded. And you may ask yourself why if they only shot 1,600 bullets, do kind of respectable estimates put the the number of total casualties at something like 2,000 people? It's because the people were so packed into the garden, there was no escape. The 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 exits where the where the crowds were were locked, um, and they fired into the thick of the crowd. They were firing with the intention of killing people, and uh, so the bullets maybe passed through one or two people. And of course, there was a stampede as well when the firing began and many people died. And in the these stampede. are those Lee Enfield rifles that are pretty powerful. Yes. So they're high velocity mm-hmm. rifles designed for battlefields. And uh, yeah, so they're very powerful weapons. But the crucial thing really in terms of Indian history is that um, it was a pivotal moment for the nationalist movement. Um, uh, Gandhi had begun his first nonviolent protest, Satyagraha, is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. His first was a roll at Satyagraha, his first... He called it the Rolat Satyagraha, and uh, it was a series of, of, of uh, demonstrations against the Rolat Act throughout India. Um, and Gandhi, who'd been a marginal political leader before that, the nationalist movement was led by great figures from the Congress Party, and he was considered a bit of an upstart. Um, it actually made him into a huge national figure, yeah. uh, the massacre, and transformed the nationalist movement into something that both Hindus and Muslims can come behind in opposition to not just the riot acts, but obviously the, the, the massacre at Amritsar. So it was a kind of watershed, really, I think you'd agree, for the independence movement as well. And also the other things like uh, um, Rabindranath Tagore, who, was an, who had been knighted by the British and uh, had received the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, saw this uh, as such an egregious act that he renounced his knighthood. Uh, and that again uh, sent a wave through the country that uh, 
this poet laureate was renouncing his uh, knighthood. And even, it was a very passionate letter that he wrote. In he fact, wrote a fantastic letter. Even Winston Churchill, who was, uh, I think it's fair to say, a terrible racist. <laughs> but uh, even Winston Churchill spoke out and said that, you know, Am Amritsar was a, you know, was a stain on the history of the empire. One of many, you probably argue, but, uh, you know, even Churchill thought it was, you know, unconscionable that the British had behaved in such a way and that it made, you know, we were talking about it earlier, it made, you know, it made, it, you know, it, that it, Churchill felt it brought Britain to the level of so, 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 so you know, infused with, uh, with race, but uh, at the level of the Bolsheviks or the Germans, you know, he said when they, when we try and criticise what, what the Bolsheviks are doing or what the Germans are doing, they will say, well, look at how you behave in India. Look at Amritsar and you will see that you are the same. You know, so they felt that the, there was now a moral equivalence. The British had thought this, this great tradition of British exceptionalism where we felt that the way that we uh, you know, uh, administered the empire was somehow different from, for example, you know, the Belgians in the Congo or you know, German empire. Um, you know, we felt that we kind of did it in a more civilised way. And I think Churchill felt that that was called into question by the behaviour around Ritzer. So it was a kind of moment of great kind of, uh, you know, kind of national torment for Britain, but obviously much more so for India. Mm. So Nanak Singh was a young man. Maybe you can tell us the story of his survival of the Amritsar massacre, which, as you say, was a, became a kind of family folklore that he himself never spoke about. Yeah, and that's one of the oddest things about this, that... Most of what we know is stuff that we heard from our grandmother. Um, I was only 12 when uh, our grandfather passed away, but there was the family folklore about him having gone to the Bagh with two of his friends, um, getting trapped inside when the firing started. Both his friends died. He himself uh, in the stampede was knocked unconscious, lost part of his hearing uh, in that incident and um, was left for dead. And walked away from there and uh, um, some months later wrote this long poem, uh, Khuni Vesaki. Um, when I was doing some research on this and asking my uncles, and I'm delighted that my uncle Kulbir Singh and my aunt are here uh, with us from Amritsar. Um, when I was doing some research into it, uh, really trying to find out more about uh, his own uh, uh, first-hand impressions. Apart from Khuni Vasaki and some reference in his autobiography, there's nothing. And it's almost like he had closed that window that this was a subject that he did not wish to talk about. And to try and understand that further, I spoke with one of her friends who's uh, into psychology and so on. And she said, this is not unusual that when you face such a traumatic event, uh, there's a part of you that no longer wishes to speak about it. So, Justin, you actually wrote a companion piece for this volume. Uh, and this piece is entitled The Sins of the Great Grandfather. And it's actually inspired by your visit to Amritsar and your visit to Jallianwalabad specifically. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience of going back there? Well, prompted also by Navdeep, who mm. phoned me up. And I'd, done, I'd, I'd written some stuff for the BBC and, uh, and done some radio reports kind of reflecting on my family's role in all of this and how it felt to be a correspondent in India at a time when India was thinking a lot about the massacre and a lot about the kind of that period of history and obviously my great-grandfather's role in it. Um, and Navdeep phoned me and said, hey, why don't you write a piece? And I actually thought it was, a, it was lovely to be able to, kind of, it was an excuse really to kind of research more deeply and, and write something longer and more 
considered than you can normally in journalism. So no, it was a it was a wonderful opportunity to to kind of think through. I mean, my family's um, you, you know, Daphne, you have a direct connection, obviously, and with your grandfather. I never knew my great grandfather. He was a, a kind of distant figure. My father kind of you know didn't reflect much on family history. So I knew that we vaguely knew that there was this kind of you know bit of unpleasant uh, history in our background. And I remember the first time I became aware of it really was when when the movie Gandhi came out. And my family, we went to the, just after it had been released, we went to Leicester Square in London, the big cinemas, you know, when the films first get released. And we all sat there, the whole family, I've got three sisters and me and my parents, and watched this film knowing that, and this awful moment watching the massacre and realising there's a direct connection with it. But the really visceral connection came when I went to Amritsar for the first time and into Jalian Wallabag and was led around by S.K. Mukherjee, who's the guy who runs the Jalian Wallabag Trust that manages. It was bought, I think, in 1920 as, you know, to stop it being redeveloped, really. Because I think the British would quite happily have (laughs) built something on it. To, to, because it was such a kind of stain on the British record in India, but it was it was preserved. I think at Gandhi's initiative, he said, "Let's." You know, so, so anyway, this guy S K Mukherjee now manages the trust, and he took me around, and I found it incredibly moving uh, to to go around. Which I think, and he and I got quite upset. I mean, I I you know became very emotional and cried. And uh, he said that was actually really common. He said it's common, very common among Indians who come and visit, but also actually many British people who come feel overwhelmed by the emotion when they go there. And I think, you know, one of the striking things is how, uh, you know, obvious it is when you go there that there's no escape and how, you know, how it's clear that Dyer, the the general in charge, um, you know, I mean, it was described in literature as shooting fish in a barrel. It was, you, you know, there was no escape. These were unarmed, peaceful protesters who'd unwittingly, uh, were involved in a in a in breaching these this this new uh, regulation that he promulgated that morning, um, and uh, and he you know there was just there was no escape. I mean it's you know horrific to an extent that is uh, yeah is shocking, and I think anyone going would find it moving. But particularly when you feel a sense of personal a family not personal family responsibility, I find it quite um, yeah very very moving indeed. Well, since you've said that, I have to ask you, of course, about this question of personal responsibility. Of course, there's a constant discussion about an apology for the massacre. Um, I wonder if you want to... Well, and Navdeep as well. I wonder what your opinions are. Whether <laughs> I, need to, I mean, it's quite interesting. Actually, I said when I was there, I did a radio piece for uh, Radio 4, the main radio station in the UK, the morning program, the Today program. And they decide, you know, we, we, it was very, very long for the program. Normally, they're like three minutes long. And we did a uh, 10-minute piece in which, you know, I went back and I, and I you know, I kind of unthinkingly recorded something and I kind of, kind of apologised uh, and I think personally, I can make an apology. Um, but I prompted this, my uncle, I'd love to be able to find it actually, but my uncle wrote me this, you know, wrote this incredible email criticizing me, saying, you know, I, you know, you know, traduced the family name, you know, libeled the country. It was really, really extravagant. <laughs> now, at one point it was included in the essay. And then out of respect for poor Uncle Richard, who's 82, and it's like a, he's a bit of an Edwardian himself. But he said, you know, he said, uh, you know, uh, uh, you've perpetrated a myth 
based on a blood libel on Gandhi's blood libel is his words wow. uh, that 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 you know that his grandfather my great grandfather you know was responsible for the massacre and i mean it was i mean it was you know i mean historically utterly false he had uncle richard had no position but it was extraordinary to see the kind of conflict in with, your own family within somebody, the family yeah, yeah within the family of just a generation difference and we and i then tried to talk to him he came he came uh, last you know last year so the 99th anniversary he went and he came and stayed with us when we were living in delhi and even then he he still would defend he felt that you know because law had broken down it was a defense of law and and therefore was justifiable you know i mean we can come to that wow. i don't feel personally responsible i don't know what people in the audience would feel about that i don't feel personally responsible davdeep do you do you blame me i don't blame you at all uh, i i think i i think uh, you know um, as a diplomat i shouldn't comment on this but in a personal capacity what i want to say is that there isn't much joy in an apology that is wrenched out of somebody you know an apology should be voluntary it should be uh, uh, coming from within you and i think that at some point the britons to redeem their own a uh, name uh, should do a kind of an apology for sins previously committed <laughs> Yeah, you see, I, I agree with that. I think, and I also, I think there's, you know, and I think the reluctance there clearly is. You know, the British feel terribly, terribly, you know, uh, conflicted about Amritsar. You know, they're horribly embarrassed. They realise it's a, you know, terrible, terrible thing. And you see David Cameron; they come so close to apologising, but they never <laughs> quite do. And I think partly there's a there's a kind of political aspect to this, which is if if Britain apologises for Amritsar. Where does it? St- I mean, where does it stop? You know, and there are there are much there are much many more people were killed in 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 massacres during the, the what Britain still calls the Indian Mutiny, which Indians call the First War of Independence. You know, and and there were, so, or the Bengal Famine, in which three, Bengal, three oh million God, people the, were killed. Exactly. So, uh, you know, uh, but then you've got the Mau Mau, you've got you know Ireland. You know, it goes on and on and on, and the list is endless. So I think that Britain has a. Pro- they, they, I think they, I think they must have thought very deeply in government about this. and they've decided that you can't apologize for individual massacres when you've got such a, a you know there's such a roll call of of uh, alternatives so and, and so i think what britain needs to do is kind of come to terms with its history in a in a in a in a in a more you know it needs to engage with its own history and its responsibility more generally for uh, for imperial crimes and imperialism in general and so i think you're right it has to come from the heart and there needs to be a discussion within britain about this um yeah. which isn't happening now and we kind of rather hope that this year the 100th anniversary of amritsar which is such a powerful symbol of of british imperialism would be the focus for a debate but we're too caught up in brexit i don't think <laughs> <laughs> anything else yeah well, well on 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 brexit of course the 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 comment in india oh, was don't talk about brexit uh, there <laughs> was that we we know from experience that brits t- take a very long time to leave <laughs> 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 so maybe let's go back to the the story of Nanak Singh and you can tell us because people may also not know his status in Punjabi as literally the father of the Punjabi novel and this is a you know just a really crucial piece in terms of filling out his oeuvre which is actually really unknown in English in fact right so um 
he was only 22 when uh, Khuni Visakhi happened and when he wrote this uh, poem. And this was really his second substantive uh, work. He had previously done a religious poem in praise of the Sikh gurus, uh, which had been a runaway bestseller. Uh, but uh, it's funny that thereafter, a year later, he was uh, um, uh, in jail for uh, protesting against another act of the Britons, which was uh, 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 which was controlling the Sikh gurudwaras, the Sikh uh, shrines, and in jail he uh, met this uh, person who had a large body of novels of Munshi Premchand, a very eminent Hindi uh, writer of that time, and he read those and realized that this was really to be his calling in life to write novels which would reform society, which would bring out the ills of society. And he started writing his very first novel while he was still in, 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 in jail uh, and uh, lost it because uh, the, uh, the jailers came and uh, raided the cell and the manuscript was destroyed. Uh, but after he came out of jail, he wrote one more piece of poetry, which was called Zakhmi Dil, which is, literally means a wounded heart, uh, which is a very clever piece of literature because it uses fables uh, to get, you know, drive home the message of British uh, sort of... Uh, uh, perfidy or, or whatever you like. Um, but uh, thereafter, he wrote in 20, 1924, he wrote his first novel. And for the next, what, 50 odd years, he wrote a book every year. And he produced this immense body of work, something like 36 novels, uh, pieces of theater, pieces of poetry, uh, and so on. And really created a tradition of the secular fiction in, in, in Punjabi literature, which was not existing until he uh, came on the scene. Kind of in the sense of Thomas Hardy, perhaps, or people like that in, 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 English, uh, in English literature, or Munshi Premchand in, in, in Hindi literature. For that, he won the Sahitya Academy Award in 1962 when President Radhakrishnan was the president. And... Um, in Punjabi, and, and this is part of the tragedy in India, that, you know, in our family, we often say, and I've heard critics say that he was such a great storyteller that had he written in a language more widely spoken than Punjabi, he could have been perhaps an international figure. Um, but uh, uh, given the fact that Punjabi is such a limited, especially the written form of Punjabi is such a limited community, uh, he didn't really gain currency beyond but in Punjab itself, most of his books are still in that 30th, 40th reprint. Uh, many of his books are classics in that sense that if you are in high school, college, university, they are mandatory reading for you. Uh, they're part of your uh, part of your syllabus. So, um, you know, there is that aspect about him. But one of the interesting things about the poem is that he's brought some of those literary devices into the poem, hasn't he? he he's, it's told almost like a thriller. You know, you want to keep, yeah. keep reading. Tell us a bit about that. <laughs> but, but, you know, so even though he wrote novels which are social dramas or um, uh, aimed at reforming society through voices of his characters, there was this unputdownable quality about them. And so what he does in this, and, and you can see sort of early signs of that, uh, that thing of a storyteller in, in, in this poem because many of his, uh, his uh, 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 short pieces end up with uh, uh, leading you forward into the, into the next, uh, uh, into the next uh, section. 
Um, for example, the fate of Amritsar, right? Um, this is this is uh, uh, on the on the day after the uh, the protests, and he says scenes like these from village and town played out too in our city sublime. Rowlett's passage that fateful day numbed every heart. It was a crime, a loss so foul it seemed unreal. Faces ashen, shocked by new paradigm. Says Nanak Singh, and that's the device he uses. Says Nanak Singh, let's move on a pace of events unfolding one at a time. There's also a feature that he uses where he periodically returns to sections called the poet's thoughts. And I, I found this section, these sections incredibly moving, where in fact the poet inserts himself into the historical story of the narrative. And he does this also by kind of reiterating the phrase, my friends. So for example, he'll say, like a bird that barely left its nest, by slingshot is brought down, my friends. Says Nanak Singh, you can't fight fate. God himself is playing with you, my friends. And there's an incredibly moving quality to the narrative because of this repetition. Yeah. So maybe you can tell us about your process of translation. So it's almost like there is a third person, first person uh, uh, going back and forth, right? So that that uh, he is, um, in some passages, the witness and in other passages, the commentator. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting to see how he uh, moves back and forth between, uh, between those, uh, uh, those, those roles. And in a sense, it starts from, uh, well, you know, there's a, there's a particular section which is uh, still before the massacre, but after the uh, April 10th killing on the railway bridge in Amritsar. And it says, and, and this is as, as people are uh, going to gather in Jalayamada Bagh the next day. Oh God, these innocent men taken to killing fields by providence, no place to run, nowhere to hide, feet shackled by lurking death intense. Crouch low, keep your heads near the ground for dire's coming and there's no defense. Um, and then it goes on to say, says Nanak Singh must paint the picture of the massacre brutal with my pen. So, you know, again, he's kind of leading you to what happens next. We actually have a really beautiful rendition of a section of this poem in song. So maybe we can actually listen to a moment of that and I can ask you to sure. comment on it. थोड़ी देर पीछे फौज गोर खेदी जनरल डायर ने ਜਿਹੀ ਕਈ ਹਜ਼ਾਰ ਗੋਲੀ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਜ਼ਾਲਮਾਂ ਖਤਮ ਕਰਾ ਦਿੱਤੀ ਪਲ ਵਿੱਚ ਹੀ ਲੋਥਾਂ ਦੇ ਢੇਰ ਲੱਗ ਗਏ ਕੋਈ ਸਕੇ ਨਮੂਲ ਪਛਾਣ ਉਥੇ 
ਗਿਣਤੀ ਸਿੱਖਾਂ ਦੀ ਬਹੁਤ ਹੀ ਨਜ਼ਰ ਆਵੇ ਭਾਵੇਂ ਬਹੁਤ ਹਿੰਦੂ ਮੁਸਲਮਾਨ ਉਥੇ ਗਿਣਤੀ ਸਿੱਖਾਂ ਦੀ ਬਹੁਤ ਹੀ ਨਜ਼ਰ ਆਵੇ ਭਾਵੇਂ ਬਹੁਤ ਹਿੰਦੂ ਮੁਸਲਮਾਨ ਉਥੇ ਸੋਨੇ ਸੂਰਮੇ ਛੈਲੇ ਛਬੀ ਲੜੇ ਜੀ ਹਾਏ ਤੜਫ ਦੇ ਸ਼ੇਰ ਜਵਾਨ ਉਥੇ ਨਾਨਕ ਸਿੰਘ ਨਾ ਪੁੱਛਦਾ ਬਾਤ ਕੋਈ ਨਾਨਕ ਸਿੰਘ ਨਾ ਪੁੱਛਦਾ ਬਾਤ ਕੋਈ ਰਾਖਾ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਦਾ ਇੱਕ ਭਗਵਾਨ ਉਥੇ audience to really get a sense of the lyricism of the Punjabi. This is really a very difficult thing that you've done, but you've also become a translator in your own right now after all this time. So maybe you can tell us about how you dealt with some of the problems of translation. Um you know, I previously thought I was incapable of translating poetry. Um I translated two of my grandfather's novels. They were obviously prose and um that worked reasonably well um when i decided that this we wanted to do this in time for the centenary and the first challenge really was that when you translate verse into verse and in a lot of the poem a um, grandfather keeps the abab kind of rhythm so every second fourth sixth eighth lines they tend to rhyme with each other um and uh so the challenge was can you capture that cadence even while staying true to the text um initially i thought it wasn't possible because my first draft that i did was really free verse and a lot of advice i was getting from friends who know more about this than i do was that the content is king content is more important focus on that and the rhyme and all is okay. Um I wasn't quite satisfied with that and somewhere Robert Frost's somewhat intemperate comment that to translate um, into free verse is a bit like playing tennis without a net. Um you can do it but uh, it's not fair. Um and uh, uh, that stuck in my head and I read up a little bit more um on the different aspects of translation and convinced myself that it had to rhyme, be in rhyme it had to capture the rhythm and when i committed myself to that only then i realized the, that i had also grown my challenge by a few times because what you suddenly realize is that the universe of vocabulary available to you has shrunk by 95% 
<laughs> and now you are stuck with trying to rhyme the second, fourth, sixth, and eighth lines uh, and still carry, capturing the same thought. So I think it turned out to be a pretty rigorous intellectual process for me uh, and certainly a, a break from my usual run-of-the-mill work. I mean, translation is a kind of mediation, and what you were talking about is a process between languages, but it's also a process between cultures, between histories, and, you know, all of these things. So I don't know, Justin, if you want to... This is something kind of akin to the work that you have also done, even as a journalist. You, you mean kind of bridging, interpreting yes, cultures a little bit? I'm not sure if it's... Called, but I don't, I'm mm-hmm. meeting the challenge of making it rhyme while carrying the meaning, I think, is more complex than even than trying to report India to the world, <laughs> uh, which is quite a challenging process, I have to say. Um, no, I think you've done extremely well. I think it, it you know, because it really f- it feels like genuine poetry, which must be the challenge of, of, of translating a poem. You know, I think you're, you're right to heed Frost and, and do the difficult thing. So, for example, the, 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 the words that you just heard, um, uh, that's a very young singer called Harpreet, um, and I requested him that would you put some of these uh, verses into music and let's see what it sounds like. And uh, when we uh, tried this in Delhi, half the audience had tears in their eyes. The, the lyricism and the music and the words are so powerful. Um, I wanted to give those of you who don't understand Punjabi a sense of the passage and what it really says in the in the translation. So this this is the scene when General Dyer has arrived in the uh, Bag. Um, so it starts with this. And bear with me because this is a little bit long. 5.30 sharp, the clock had struck. Thousands gathered in the Bag, my friends. Leaders came to lament the, the nation's woes taking turns to speak out loud, my friends. Voiced grievance, hardship, anger, sorrow, saying no one listens to us, my friends. What can we do? What options left? Can't say any, see any ray of light, my friends. Those words forlorn, they barely voiced, came soldiers thundering down, my friends. At Dyer's command, those Gurkha troops gathered in a formation tight, my friends. Under tyrant's orders, they opened fire straight into innocent hearts, my friends. And fire and fire and fire they did. Some thousands of bullets were shot, my friends. Like searing hail, they felled our youth, a tempest not seen before, my friends. Riddled bodies, riddled chests and bodies slid to the ground. Each one a target large, my friends. Haunting cries for help did rend the sky. Smoke rose from smoldering guns, my friends. Just a sip of water was all they sought. Valiant youth lay dying in the dust, my friends. That narrow lane to enter the bag sealed off on Dyer's command, my friends. No exit, no escape, no way out was left. Making bag a deathly trap, my friends. A fortunate few somehow survived, while most died then and there, my friends. Some ran with bullets ripping their chest, stumbling to their painful end, my friends. Others caught the bullet while running away, dropping lifeless in awkward heaps, my friends. In minutes, the bag so strewn with corpses, 
and I knew just who was who my friends. Many of them did look like Sikhs. Among amid Hindus and Muslims, plenty, my friends. In the prime of their youth, our brave hearts lay, gasping for one last breath, my friends. Long hair lay matted in blood and grime. In slumber deep, they sleep, my friends. Says Nanak Singh, who knows their state, but God, the one and only, my friends. It's interesting. One of the interesting things about like a centenary, an anniversary like this, is it calls forth, obviously, your inspiration to, to actually sit down and do the translation. But also there's been some quite interesting new uh, histories of the period. And one of the, there's a, there's a book called Amritsa by a guy called Kim Wagner, who's a, he's German, but he's a, he works in Britain, British academic. And he looks at the way in which the kind of degree of misunderstanding between the two communities. It's a really fascinating study of, of, of the run-up to Amritsar and the very detailed, it's all based in Amritsar. And uh, the degree to which both sides misunderstood each other's intentions. So Dyer genuinely believed that there was an emergency and that there was a rebellion happening and it, there were echoes of the mutiny. And he felt that only this, we discussed earlier, this exemplary punishment was necessary. And at the same time, the, the, the Indians felt aggrieved by the way in which the British had behaved on the bridge, as you mentioned. There was on the tenth of April, the 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 the, the, uh, the an Indian group came over a bridge into what they call the civil lines where the Europeans lived, and uh, the British troops thought they were being overwhelmed, and they shot and killed, I think, three people on the bridge and wounded others again with these Lee Enfield rifles. But it's interesting the degree to which both communities were so separate and so in, unable to understand each other. And, you know, and in a way that set the path towards this kind of horror that both interpreted. So Dyer, when he justifies what he did, this awful massacre that you've just heard and written about, you know, from, remember, a, a first-hand witness, when he talks about it, he, he says, you know, I was about to be overwhelmed. And they say, why did you, why did you go on shooting? One of his... Uh, uh, you know, um, I don't know what rank he was, but another soldier said, uh, you know, you know, you've done enough, you should stop. And he said, no, we need to continue. And he said he did that because he felt that they would, the crowd would overwhelm him and he would be, you know, and he would be humiliated. But of course, the crowd was not in the mind for that. The crowd had gone peacefully. And again, this gulf of misunderstanding is quite extraordinary. And, you know, I mean, very, very hard to kind of understand today, actually. In fact, there's one, there's one section uh, right in the start of the book uh, where, uh, you know, uh, while the protests are just beginning and Gandhi is given the call for Hartal and so on, which really captures this gulf that, uh, between the communities that he's talking about. So if I can just read out a small yes, portion. Um, it says, Dispirited and despondent by the turn of events, they lamented aghast at miserable fate, which sinking hearts they then witnessed a shadow spread across a nation great. All comforts and pleasures now sadly gone, leaving gloom and grief to stalk the state. So sad they sound like the wailing crane, to smile or greet they hesitate. Shops closed and workplaces empty, forlorn and lost in streets they wait. Strikes called in every city and town, sobs muffled they roam in a sorry state. 
those valiant sons of Bharat Mata, shedding tears dismayed and desolate. Each tragedy retold, notes get compared, every nook and corner a place to debate. But a scene so different, but a scene so different on the other side, friends gather at home to celebrate. A mission accomplished, the act is done. Tis time for wine and feast ornate. Their quizlings, turncoats and traitors all come laden with gossip and tales narrate. Rebels, robber, scoundrel and more, names used against us to aggravate. Framing our heroes with guilt and treason, damage the reek on our nation great. So the, you know, the, the, the contrast between one community that is grieving against the Rawlet Act and the other which is celebrating, uh, you know, and the, the way that comes out in the poem itself. Oh, it's very beautiful. It's very, yeah, very beautiful. And also the kind of disconnect between the rebel and he who is treasonous. Why don't you show us the book? Well, I, brought, I thought it would be interesting to bring it on. This is the, so, you know, the, the way that the act was passed, the, the British were very worried about what they called at the time sedition. Indeed, sedition still exists in the Indian, mm -hmm. uh, in the Indian uh, kind of legal system. It doesn't exist in Britain anymore. And, you know, sedition just means kind of treasonous behaviour. Um, and they were worried because they could see this upsurge of treasonous behaviour happening in India was very strong in the Punjab. It was very strong in in um, yeah, around Calcutta and in Bengal, um, and so they were very anxious about what they saw as this kind of uncontrolled rebellion that seems to be happening. And uh, so, my great grandfather was asked to go and do an inquiry, a government inquiry into sedition in India. This is in 1917, so before the end of the First World War. And the British were looking ahead, and the I think 1.3 million Indians had taken part, fought on the side of the British in the First World War. And there was a recognition that there was a kind of inevitability that the British needed to concede some self-government to India. And at the same time, I think the British were thinking, you know, we'll give them self-government, but, you know, things are a bit restive, as they used to say in those days. <laughs> things are a bit restive in India. We need to make sure we've got the kind of legal architecture to control things if we do. And in 1915, they passed an act called the Defence of India, which had brought some very, very, uh, it was wartime measures, but brought some very, very tough restrictions on, for example, um, you know, seditious literature, publishing seditious literature, being involved with groups that uh, supported sedition. Again, that just really means treason. Um, and the idea was that I think the British really were looking for an excuse to, you know, to carry that wartime legislation over into into peacetime. And essentially, I think my grandfather used the word quizzling, your grandfather used the word quizzling. I think in a way, my grandfather was the quizzling who uh, was tasked with doing this because I've, this is the committee, this is the report of the committee. So he went out in 1917. This was published in 1918. And what's interesting about this is essentially it's a kind of account of all the disturbances and, you know, terrorist acts and stuff that have happened across India, but without really any kind of, what it's really missing, it's interesting to, I don't know if you've read it, but when you read this, there's no analysis of what is motivating people to protest against the British. You know, so at no point does he sit and engage with why these people are doing what they're doing, which seems quite extraordinary. But clearly that was, I suspect, part of the British agenda. They didn't want to think too deeply about the rights and wrongs of the nationalist cause, which was why this change, you know, there was this upsurge 
in kind of rebellious behavior. And obviously, without thinking, if you don't think about why people are motivated to do what they're doing, you're never going to be able to come up with appropriate legislation. And I think that, you know, history has absolutely proved that, you know, the legislation was wholly inappropriate to the moment, that it completely destroyed the British reputation in India. The anger that, you know, you've just read about, the anger that people felt when the act was passed, you know, because of course that passage from the poem comes immediately after the act is passed and people are furious with what the British are trying to do because it's transparent to the Indians, it's obvious, you know. Um, and in fact, I was just very vividly brought to mind, um, I met Trushar Gandhi, who's um, Mahatma Gandhi's great-grandson, you know, to talk about the role of our great-grandfathers together. <laughs> his my sins and his, you know, his saintliness. And, uh, and he, was, he was very, very funny. First, I mean, at first I was anxious to meet him. I just thought he might be a little bit kind of, uh, you know, hostile to me. But he greeted me very warmly. And I, I said, yeah, I'm surprised that you're so, you know, friendly. And he said, wow, you know, uh, you know in a way we, we have so much to thank your grandfather for. And I was, he said, well, he was responsible put, for putting the first nail in the coffin of the British Empire, so uh, which is quite a claim. I'm not sure it's entirely true. I think the nails have already been firmly hammered in by then. But he also he said uh, he said something uh, very interesting. He said that for his great grandfather, the Rollout Act was really a very was a gift. Yes. He said it really helped his great grandfather because he was looking. He, he you know he knew he needed to unite you know as the, the Indians against and not just Hindus and the obvious one is Hindus and Muslims. But not just Hindus and Muslims, he had to unite the kind of upper caste Congress leadership who traditionally had led the nationalist movement with the people of India, had to engage the entire community of people. And he said, you know, your great-grandfather's legislation was a gift for uh, Gandhi because it was, he said it was so transparently, manifestly unjust. All Indians could oppose it together. And it actually, that's what gave a rocket to the independence movement because everybody could unite. And then, of course, in a very cynical, and I mean this in a cynical way, the icing on the cake was Amritsar, which became, you know, which was so obviously appalling that, you know, that at that point, people like Tagore said, we cannot deal with people who behave like this. You know, we cannot countenance a kind of settlement with these people. So the modest kind of moves to self-government the British had been talking about became kind of themselves unacceptable. And Indians said, we need full independence now. And the Congress symbolically held their annual session in Amritsar in, uh, because of that. Yes, in yeah, 1920. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. <laughs>